Okay, welcome everyone to the Fireside Chat. This is our January session, and I hope we have a good new year. I hope everyone is going to have a better new year this year in 2021. We have some new people joining us from the MBT Volunteer Group, and that is Andres. Thanks for being here, and I, I hope more of the volunteer group will join. Uh, we'll leave some information on how you can be a volunteer for MBT. Uh, there's various projects going on. So let's get started today. We'll start with Andres, and, and Andres has a couple of questions for Tom. Please go ahead. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so my first question is, uh, how can we respond to a physical aggression with love? especially in daily life situations when the physical aggression comes from a significant one or a random person in the street and it's not a life or death situation. Okay, well, of course, that would it would matter how how um, serious the the uh, aggression is. You know, are they coming at you with a club or an axe or, you know, you said not life-threatening. You know, they're coming out with your club or a, a frying pan or uh, something else, or is it just, um, well, you said physically violent, did you not, as different than emotionally or verbally violent? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, if there's physical violence involved, then, of course, you do have the, you know, you should have the uh, right and ability to defend yourself. You don't have to stand there and be beaten. You can, uh, you know, take the frying pan away or uh, otherwise, uh, you know, try to to keep from from uh, being hurt and hopefully without hurting whoever the aggressor is. If you can do that, if you're bigger and stronger, then that's fairly easy to do. If you're if you're smaller and weaker, well, then that's much harder to do. Then I suspect in that situation, it'd be better to remove yourself. In other words, run, <laughs> get out of the, get out of the way. You know, if you're the small one and the, and the weaker one. So, <clears throat> but you can defend yourself, of course, and, and uh, do it at the minimum amount of force necessary to defend yourself. If the violence is not all that severe as far as injury, you know, if it's more, let's say, verbal violence or emotional violence, then mostly the, the thing to do is to stand there and be attentive and listen, but don't react. Because any re depends on, on what triggers it, but if it's an emotional you know, kind of fear-based thing, then anything you say or do is going to make it worse. So the best thing to do then is just to listen, pay attention, take it seriously, but don't have much of an opinion. Often uh, apologies or saying you're sorry or something like that might help uh, calm that other person down, but you try to just calm them down and kind of let that go. And you don't get upset or angry or defensive because now you're connecting it to the, to that negativity. You're connecting to it with your with your own energy. So you don't want to, um, you know, when you fight fire with fire, all you get is a bigger fire. So you you don't really want to uh, you know to push back or fight back or get defensive and say no, that's not what happened and. You're wrong because all of that just escalates it and makes it a lot worse. So if it's physical violence, then protect yourself or get away from it as best you can. Stay away from it. Don't put yourself in that situation. And as you see that it's heading toward that situation, and if you're the, the smaller and the weaker, then it's time to leave before it actually gets that far. And you should have some sense of when that is. And... Um, if you have to be around people like that who are bigger and stronger and violent, then you should always have a you should always keep an escape route in your mind. You know, where are you going to go? You know, how, how are you going to remove yourself from it? Keep that as a part of a plan. Now, again, if you're the bigger and stronger one, then it's not really that much of an issue. You can take control of it. You know, you can you can. Uh, 
know, if, if it's your, uh, you know, if it's your six-year-old that's really upset with you and is trying to beat you with their fists, you know, well, it's not really a big problem for you because you're so much bigger and stronger. So then you can just let them hit you or uh, tell them not to or maybe anything again that you would do if you try to constrain them. You just make you just enrage them more, even if it's just a six-year-old. So anytime you try to go out and stop and, and overpower and overwhelm, take away, argue, defend, all of that just throws gasoline on the fire and is generally not helpful. But if you're in a, an abusive situation where somebody is, is trying to you know, beat on you regularly, then you should remove yourself from the situation. That's not a healthy situation to be in. If you think it's just temporary, like that person's just having a schizophrenic moment or, you know, they happen to be um, maybe uh, uh, every once in a while they go into into meltdowns or something. Well, then you just patiently work with it. But if they're just violent and they're violent all the time, then you should remove yourself and not be a part of that. It's not constructive to to uh, have physical violence, you know. You know, push towards you regularly. That's not a good environment to live in. Even if you are the bigger and the stronger one, that's not a good environment to live in. You need to fix the problem. You need to really deal on what the what is the issue, what's the problem, why is that anger there, and see if there's something you can do to keep it from rupturing. Like if you push the button then you have to be careful not to push those buttons. Or if there's some other issue, then maybe you can try to help them solve that. So it just depends on the situation. Yeah, emotional violence is a little different in that you don't have to leave, you don't have to go away, but just don't get defensive. Don't take it personally, even though it is intended to be personal, you just don't take it personally. You just look at it and say, well, it's just the way they are. You know, it's on their path to growing up and uh, they have trouble dealing with things. And it's the way they are. And I'll try not to throw gasoline on that fire. I'll try to just, you know, let that fire burn out. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you for the, for the answer. So I have a second question. Um, uh in an interview found in your channel called The History of Enlightenment from a Scientific Viewpoint, you talk about the fractal process of evolution. And as cells lowered their entropy and became together to create a more complex and survivable beings, um, you say that humans will continue this fractal process of evolution through cooperation, which may lead into cooperation between planets, galaxies, etc. My questions are, Following this fractal pattern of evolution, would cooperation between different virtual realities be possible? And there is a little following up question. Uh, in your experience exploring consciousness, have you experienced different, different virtual realities that are already cooperating? Um, well, the first one, is it possible to cooperate across virtual realities? Yes, but it wouldn't be what we would call physical. It's going to be, you know, in mind space, not in what we call physical space. So it's not in, in PMR, physical matter reality, because now you're just in that virtual reality called, you know, the physical universe. So you can only going to interact within that physical universe. But if you, uh, you know, go sit down, close your eyes, shift your focus to some other virtual reality, then yes, you can interact in another virtual reality. Um, you know, between virtual realities without much problem. And if given permission by the system, you can even take on a body there. So then it seems physical to you in that sense. But you have to remember your, your origin, where you're launching from is in this virtual reality called the physical universe. So you still have to, you know, you still have to deal with that. It's not like you're just going to be in this other reality and just stay there because you like it better. You're still, your home Your home base is in this virtual reality, and you're going to come back to that home base 
when you get hungry, you know, when you get sleepy, when you uh, somebody throws a bucket of cold water on you, you know, as those things happen, you're going to, you know, you're going to come back here. So you can't just go and leave, but you can visit those others. And, you know, I've interacted in other virtual realities, and I'm sure other virtual realities interact here, you know, in ours. There's some cross traffic between them. But it's generally in the margins. It's very small. It's not a major. Uh, it's not a major thing because there's not a whole lot of people that do that. And when they do that, they have to abide by some pretty strict rules about not creating scenes and problems and discontinuities in that reality. And there's a lot of other things. So, just by the nature of the rules, they're not going to leave much of a mark or much of a footprint. They're going to be pretty much invisible. Because if they're not, then they won't be allowed. They'll be yanked out and won't be allowed to come back again. So the fact that they that they are pretty much invisible in the sense that nobody would know that they're not from that virtual reality, that's one of the conditions for being able to go there. So it's not something that you'd notice, and it's small. But that's, that's a possible thing to do. Um, so, yes, entities do interact cross virtual reality bounds. Um, but you have to remember where your home base is, as do they. That's your fundamental place where you experience. These other experiences are kind of in addition to your primary, your primary experiences. So, uh, actually, can I, can I ask a follow-up question or a little bit like I was thinking more like cooperation as the whole virtual reality cooperating with the other whole virtual virtual reality. I know this is uh, it's kind yeah. of crazy, but it's like every idea we see yeah we see um, in the virtual reality having your skills, for example, and being able to uh, to like transcend this reality and cooperate with another one for another thing greater than the virtual realities. I suspect it's possible if you look at digital technology that things like that could happen, but it would be a lot more complex for the system to host something like that. You know, think of a think of um, how you would have the characters in World of Warcraft go uh, uh, you know trugging into uh, the Sims, you know, and, and uh, playing with the Sims characters, you know. So you had your elf and your barbarian, and they'd walk up and, and knock on the door and walk into some Sim character's house and sit down and have a beer with them. You know, that, uh, you know, just the rendering of that means that you kind of have to meld the rule sets, certain rules in certain places you know, so you have to be careful about rules and how rules are shared. Things you can do in one place, you can't do in another. So there's a rule set problem. And other than that, then it's just a lot more characters because now you got two whole sets of characters from two reality frames that the system has to keep up with all the interactions between more players. So it could be done if the system wanted to, you know, to render that. I don't see anything that would make that impossible. It would technically be possible. So then the question is, would the system want to do it? Is there a reason for the system to do that? That would be kind of difficult to answer. You know, it's hard to say. Uh, can it get more out of that kind of a sharing than it could get out of just individual virtual realities? Perhaps. I don't know. You know, it depends. Probably not now, not the state that I see the evolution of consciousness in now probably would not support that. But, you know, once the quality of consciousness got pretty high, yeah, maybe it would be something that uh, the system would host. But uh, it would have to be pretty far in the future, I think. And both systems would both have to be equally uh, evolved as far as their quality of consciousness. All right. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Eric, please go ahead with your question. All right. Um, my question, uh, my questions are mostly about healing and using one's intent to improve situations in general. 
Uh, one question I often struggle with is when is it a good idea to use your intent to heal yourself or to improve your own life situation in other ways? And when is it better to just let things happen as they happen? For example, um, I have personally lived with some chronic health issues basically my entire life, but I've always held back from using my intent to heal myself based on the idea that it's probably not wise to create a bubble around myself and remove hardship from my life that could help me to grow up. On the other hand, one might argue that it's better to just try to create the things in the life that we desire to create because we will grow up and learn many valuable lessons and develop many valuable qualities and skills along the way. And we would probably grow up a lot faster that way compared to just being passive and not doing anything. Because we think that chasing after what we want might be ego or fear driven. So I would like to hear your take on this. Well, as you uh, point out, there are upsides and downsides to both. You know, being passive, there's an upside that you are not creating a bubble. You're just living experiences as they come to you. And generally, we get what we need and deserve, which means the things that come to you are things that will teach you. So that's the upside. And as you say, the downside is that uh, you may miss out on on a lot of learning because you're not actually going out and seeking better skills, better understandings. So, and it's the same on both sides. So how do you know whether you're on the upside or on the downside of those particular uh, ideas? And you know that through your own intuition. You know that how you feel about it. You get an intuitive sense of whether or not you are escaping things you don't want, okay, so you're healing this or fixing that or, you know, changing somebody's mind. You're, you're, you're working to make things the way you want them. In other words, you're, you're escaping things the way they are or whether you're in a process of learning and a process of, of stretching yourself and your abilities, uh, you know, your, your abilities to connect with people or abilities to understand. And you just have to sense what is my intent, you know, what's my motivation here? What's my intent? Am I making life easier for me? Or am I growing, learning, exercising? You know, we we learn more by doing, by applying, than we do just by thinking about it. You know, application is a lot more educational than just theory. Theory alone is is a good place to start. But then you have to start applying that theory to really understand it. To really get it, you need application. So the way you figure that out is just kind of go inside and, and say, what's my motivation here? Am I trying to learn? Am I trying to see bigger pictures? And I have to experiment to do that. I need to, if I'm going to understand it, I need to actually live it, be it, connect, try, experiment. Uh, you know, if you... Uh, but if you're just trying to make life easier on yourself, it's if it's more of a, of a an ego feed, then, well, that's not so good. Just let that go. And even on an illness, if you get a certain illness, you can think about is, you know, what am I learning from this illness? And if you think if there's some good lessons there, then you just might want to leave it and deal with it. If you look at it and you can say, uh, I really don't see like I'm learning much from this. It's just. It's just your everyday head cold. You know, I've had a hundred of them and it's, it's not really much lesson in it. Why don't I just get rid of it? See, that's a different intent. So being aware of your own intent is how you decide what to do. And don't worry about getting it wrong because as always, we do the best we can. We make our best choices and then we learn from them. You know, so you, do your best, and then after some time, you look back and say, well, how did that go? Was that, did that work out well, or did I miss something there? And based on that, you'll learn better how to judge the next one. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's helpful. Thank you. So there's, there's not one rule that we can apply on everything. Mm -hmm. It's situation-based. Yes. Many things are that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, when you look just at theory, theory tends to be very, uh, very buttoned down, 
logical and precise and the, you know you have rules and this is how that works and this is how this works but once you get the application you're almost always everything's on a individual basis a case by case and you have to come to terms with your own in, intention once right. you get the application so that's just typically like that on all of your application stuff it's all going to be one-offs okay um let's see my a follow-up question, um, it may be just sort of the same question restated, but let me just ask it. Um, I've often heard you say reality is just the way it needs to be with regards to healing oneself or healing other people. So my question was, does that mean that there are no situation in which it would actually be the lowest entropy choice to heal oneself or others? Yeah, yeah pretty much the same answer. Of course, there are times when it's good to heal yourself or to heal others. And there's times to let that alone and not do that. And you just have to understand what's your intent with yourself. And if it's for somebody else, how effective will you be in helping them? Let's say you have someone who is struggling with a lesson and that struggle has gotten so severe that they've made themselves ill. Okay. Well, that, that illness is part of their lesson because it's the struggle that's led them to, to be ill. On the other hand, that illness causes them so much distraction that it's hard for them really to make any progress on learning the lesson. So now you might help them heal just to give the person some breathing room, some space where they can begin to think again and reconsider and restructure what they're doing and why they're doing it. Because sometimes the, the symptoms of bad behavior can be rather distracting. So in that case, that's a case where somebody's created the problem themselves, but they're not capable of dealing with it because of the problem itself. The, the results are such that they can't deal with it. So going in and healing it. Now, if they don't learn anything during that breather that you give them, then they'll go right back and you know they'll start it up again. But you could occasionally kind of back off the symptoms so that they get a little chance to reconsider how they're doing things. And yeah, you just, it's another thing. Your intuition just has to tell you whether that's a good thing to do or not a good thing to do. All right. Thank you. That, yeah, that's a very clear answer. Um, uh, another question I had was Is there any ethical difference? Uh, in seeking healing by traditional means, so Western medicine, uh, alternative medicine, or asking somebody to heal uh, you with their mind. Uh, I once heard a spiritual teacher say that he would probably just go to a normal doctor if he would ever get ill, despite him being very well able to heal himself with his mind. Is there any sense to that? Sure. There is sense to that. In general, it depends on the situation again, but in, in general, if you have a problem that could be serious, let's say you have a, a lump someplace on your body and you don't know whether that's a, a benign tumor or a, or a malignant tumor. Okay. Well, for at least a week, maybe as much as two weeks, working on it yourself with your mind would be a good thing to do to try to raise the probability that it's benign rather than malignant. So I would not suggest in running off and having a biopsy immediately. I would think spend some time trying to raise the probability of it being benign or disappearing and lower the probability, you know, that it's that it's cancerous. But after two weeks, you've about done what you're going to do. You're probably not going to change it a whole lot after that. So then would be a good time to go have the biopsy done and let Western medicine do what it can do. Maybe you can just remove it. That's the, usually the easiest solution. If it hasn't spread or uh, there aren't other problems, they could just get rid of it. So particularly people who would worry, say, and have fear about that being a cancerous lump. Well, then if you wait two weeks and most of that time you're fearful 
of it being cancer. Well, you've just poured two weeks worth of negative energy into that, and you're raising the probability that it's going to be cancerous because you're worrying about it. So see, now that just depends on you. So if you're very fearful and you worry about things like that, then it's probably good to spend a day working on it or two days working on it and then go see the doc and get your biopsy. On the other hand, if you don't worry about those things and okay, it's cancerous or it's not, whatever, I'll work, you know, I'll, I'll deal with life however it comes. Then you could spend a week or two or three or even a month working on it if you wanted to because you're not pouring negative energy into that situation. So again, it depends on the individual. Now, the reason that you might just, let's say you are very good at healing things with your mind, the reason that you might go to the physician anyway is because of the bubble thing that you were talking about. Okay, here's an illness. That illness is going to require me to what um, stop doing certain things. Maybe the illness makes you tired or makes you you know, have lethargy. So maybe you'd have to quit doing these things and start doing other things. Or maybe it would make you, uh, instead of going out and chopping wood, you'd sit down and read a book because you don't have much energy. It would change things. But maybe there's a book you really need to read and you're spending all your time chopping wood. See, it, it might be, again, you interfere with it. When you up front say, well, I'll, I'll butt in and I'll fix it, you're not letting the natural flow of things happen. Or maybe you go in to see that doctor, and while you're there, you'll meet somebody that you really need to meet. You see, you don't know. So life is all connected. You know, you have all this connectedness, and to jump out of that flow by rearranging things is generally not such a good idea. On the other hand, it you know, if it's something... Uh, that's just annoying, and it's it, you know you look at it and you say, well, I don't see there's it's going to add anything. It's just going to be annoying, and I can fix it. Then you probably just fix it. But if it's actually going to change what you do and how you do it, and and uh, the people you see and meet and that sort of thing, then you might just let it ride and see where it takes you. And so it would depend. You may let it ride for a while and then decide to fix it. So I guess in summary, I'd say that as you get better and better at healing, you're less and less inclined to heal because you realize that life is just about perfect the way it is. You don't have to change a lot of things. You're okay with things. You're okay if you're sick. You're okay if you die. You're okay you know, if, if things are hard or if things are easy. It's just your life. You're going through life, and you're, you're meeting your challenges, and whatever happens will happen. And when you have that sort of attitude, then you really don't feel a lot of need to change anything. But if you are doing that and you uh, have a, you know, an event you have to go to where you're presenting and you have a cold, well, <laughs> you might work on that just because that would, that would be annoying and it would make your delivery and your event a whole lot less productive because – you know, you wouldn't be feeling well. So in that case, you probably, the low entropy solution would be to work on yourself. But because you can't see all the possible connections, it's better just to leave it alone. See, we only think a couple of couple of moves ahead, whereas maybe you go do that event with your cold and somebody would come up with a remedy that otherwise wouldn't have come up and talked to you. And you'd get to meet that person, and they turn out to be very pivotal in, you know, in what you're doing. You don't know. And because you don't know, just let it, let it happen as it happens is often the best solution. Right. And I guess ultimately it comes back to the listen to your intuition. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And listen to the intuition, not just one decision, but as you go, you listen to it and you go down this path a while and, and you listen to it again and again. So you may work, you know, you may uh, let it ride, then go work on healing yourself and get it, just back it up some to where it's not so annoying anymore and then let it ride 
see if it goes away or gets worse again. So you can, you can just, you know, it's not like you just make one choice and stick to it. Whatever your intuition tells you is a good thing to do now, do that. I found that intuition is a lot smarter than my intellect because it has a lot more information. All right. Great. Um, so then one last question on the same topic. Um, I'm not certain of this, but I vaguely recall hearing you once say that a person is much more powerful when influencing their own health with their own intent compared to influencing someone else's health with their intent. Is that correct? And could you explain how that works? Yeah, it's correct some of the time. In the way, It's not correct some of the time. But in the way that I intended it, uh, and that is that when you work on somebody else, that person has a lot of power about their own health. So if they really need that illness and you take it away, they'll put it back or they will push back so that what you try to do just doesn't work very well because they're pushing back. So an individual has a lot of or has more power in itself than they do really of, of changing others because others have their own power, you know, that you have to deal with. Whereas when it's you, it's just yours. You don't have any pushback. If what you want to do is heal yourself, then you're not one part of you healing yourself and another part pushing back against it. You know, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, I guess that could happen. People do things like that all the time, but in generally that, you know, that's kind of an irrational situation, but, so that's what I meant, is that when you're working on yourself, then everybody's on the same sheet of music. Everybody wants to get well, or everybody wants to let it ride. Everybody means all, you know, all parts of you, all working together. You don't have anybody that's disagreeing and wanting to go the other way. So that makes it easier to work on yourself. Now, there's another thing, though, that makes it harder to work on yourself. And that is, if you work on yourself, you have to do it from a detached point of view. If you're, if you're not detached from the result or detached from, from uh, the illness, then you're, you will have expectations, you will have uh, beliefs, you will have, you know, your ego will get in the way. Oh, I don't want to have, I don't want to have a can, I don't want that lump to be cancerous, you see. So now when I look at it, well, I don't see any cancer. Well, is that because there's none there? Is that because you don't want to see it? You say, are you overriding the data because you don't like the answer? So that's a problem when healing yourself. Are you really seeing what's wrong? Are you getting that right? Or is that colored by the fact that it's you and you have an emotional attachment to how the outcome is and to what you get? So then that makes it harder. Now, that's the reason that doctors, you know, don't operate on their family members because they're, they're not detached. And when you're not detached, you can't think as quickly and as correctly. You can't act as quickly and correctly. You second guess yourself. So you're not, you're not as competent, you know, let's say a heart surgeon trying, you know, doing surgery on his wife or a child. He wouldn't be as competent doing that as he would be on a stranger. And a stranger, it's just all the facts, what you need to do and when you need to do it, and you do it. If it's somebody that you have a strong attachment to, then that gets in the way. Oh, should I do that? Yeah, but that, that might have a you know a downside. And then, but I, I need to do that, but I wouldn't want the downside because I don't want to hurt them. And you get all walled up over your feelings. So that's a problem. Now, many people cannot be detached from healing themselves, from looking and seeing what's wrong with themselves, in which case it's very difficult for them to do that. But if you can detach, if you can treat yourself just like you were a stranger, whatever's, whatever you see, that's what's there. You don't have any emotional attachment to the result. Then working on yourself is really easier and you're, and you're more powerful because it's you. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. Carolyn, are you going to read your questions? Hello, Tom. Uh, I 
was wondering that um, because I have fears that I have to work on and uh, sometimes I am aware of a fear-driven behavior, but I do not feel quite ready in that moment to let go of it. So I'm always justifying and finding reasons to push it aside and work on other fears first. So that doesn't mean that I do not want to work on it. It's just that kind of wait, want to wait for the right timing. Do you think it would be better for me to just be super courageous and just risk it all and try to get rid of it right now? Or do you think that sometimes it's smart that it, that I give it some time and work on it, something slowly to make it seem more comfortable for me? It depends, Caroline. Um, depends on you. Again, this is application, and it depends on the individual. If you get your courage together and decide you're just going to you know, jump into it and do it, that might work. That may be just what you need to get through it. And it's just too scary to do it otherwise. You start, but then it's too scary, so you, you make excuse and you do something else. So it could be very helpful just to gather up your courage and, and go face it, do it, interact with it. Now, on the other hand, if you do that and you're screwing up your courage, isn't real courage, it's, should we call it, it's, uh, it's image courage. You just convince yourself intellectually that you're going to go face it and you're going to beat it, so on. And all of that is a kind of a psych up and it's mostly in your intellect, then you're going to jump into it and you probably will, will get overwhelmed and turn around and run because it wasn't real courage. It's a, it was just you psyched yourself up to go do it without actually developing the courage necessary, in which case then you can end up worse off because then now you've had a deeper, more frightening, scary experience, and you're twice, you know, once burned, twice shy. You're, you're twice as shy about going in and working with it. So in that sense, it can be a problem. But if you, you know, if you don't, you know, if you do go all the way to where you do face it, it's probably always better if you can do that because you'll find that that, that, that monster, that terrible thing that you're trying to face will just disappear into smoke. And that will take a big load off your shoulder. So if you can face it, it's better to face it straightforwardly and not keep, well, I'll try. Oh, it doesn't feel quite right yet. Now, maybe I'll do that later. And you can keep putting it off and putting it off. But that takes real courage to really do it. You see, courage and determination. If you've just psyched yourself up intellectually, I'm going to do this thing. You know, then that's false courage. And that can get you in worse trouble than where you started from. So it sort of, it sort of depends. It also would be helpful if you have maybe some other people involved that you trust a whole lot that would be there to, you know, to, to catch you if you feel like you, you know, you need help so you don't feel quite so alone. Or maybe the nature of it, you have to do it alone. I don't know. That just depends on, on you. But having somebody around who understands, somebody who will, you know, who loves you unconditionally such that, uh, you know, you have no fear about what happens, they'll be there anyway. Then that can be something that helps your, helps your courage. And that can be real courage. That, so it's just up to you. I think a lot of people feel that way. They know they should make a change, but because they have, because the fear, they have to face that fear. They have to face it and they have to deal with it. And they really don't want to because that's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good and it's scary. So they keep making excuses and not going there because it doesn't feel good and they don't like to do things that don't feel good. So up to you, you know, how badly do you want to really get over that fear? If you really, if it's, if it's really causing problems in your life and causing, it's a block in your growth, 
then it's probably worth thinking about it and seriously coming up with the courage to face it. Because once you really do face it, you won't have the problem anymore. These problems are not real. They're only problems because you define them as problems. And when you face it, that goes away. But yeah, don't don't do it in a way that you you're forcing yourself to do something you're not ready for. That can cause things to be even worse than they were before. So you, ready for it or not? Your intuition again. There's no rule that says you know when uh, the moon's in a certain position and you have a certain age and this happens and that happens. Now you're ready. It's just when you're ready. You're ready when you have enough courage to do it. And you can look, you know, if you're looking for that courage, you know, that motivation, look at what it's done in your life. Look at the choices that you've made because of it. Look at how it has, you know, kind of crippled you so far by making you less than you really are. And then look at the future. Are you going to continue to let it cripple you and make you less than you could be because of that fear in the future? And that's the price you're paying. And then you you look at that price and say, well, you know, would I rather pay that price and just be that way and, you know, not deal with it? Or would I rather face it, face the uncertainty of where is this going to take me? Who am I going to be afterwards? What is this going to do? And you'll find that, that you know, it's like you're climbing this mountain, you know, and you, it's a very scary mountain to climb. But once you actually climb it and you look back at it, you find out, oh, it's just a tiny little hill. I just imagined it was a mountain. It's just this little hill, you know. I could jump over it in one hop. Okay, thank you. So um, I have a second question about um, female menstruation, menstruation cycle. And I want to know if you have any additional insights aside from what is already commonly known in conventional medicine about the female menstruation cycle. I don't know. I haven't really thought about that a lot. It's not something I think about generally. <laughs> Nothing uh, comes to mind if I know anything. But if you have some more specific uh, question around that, you know, that might be able to give you some help, but just in general, that kind of a general question, no, I, <laughs> that's not something I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about or worrying about, so I, I haven't thought of it. Uh, it's just our biology, you know, it's the way our biology works. So that's what, that's what you know already. I mean, you know the, the biology story, that's just the rule set. So it's the way we have, you know, it's the way our avatars Procreate, you know, so it's, it's just a rule set sort of sort of thing. And I can't think of anything that I would know particularly that would shed light on that process. Okay. Yeah, I'm just asking because I, um, for me, it was all, also always that way that I really didn't think about it and it was just natural. But then I had an, like I had an issue like six months ago, it started like it started to get like a nightmare for me. And like, there's like a week of the month that I'm like unable to go out and unable to sort of have live my normal life. And I went to the doctors and they couldn't really help me with it. They just were sort of recommending me to um, take the pill, but they just said, yeah, it can come and it can go, but they didn't have a real explanation for it. So I went on my own research and, um, yeah, there's like a lot of, um, a lot of theories about it in the spiritual world, like that it's, um, sort of connected with emotional issues that, um, mm -hmm. that is sort of points out to fears and uh, beliefs that I have and that I need to work on. So I need to go more inverse and, deal with it more, whereas otherwise I would just do other things in normal life. Yeah, now, now that makes sense. I can, I can see that, and I would agree with what you just said. That's true with most all of our, our body functions. Our attitudes 
our thoughts, our minds, where we are, our fears will affect them. You know, mind leads, body follows. So if you are, for instance, would be having uh, fears wrapped around your sexuality or your, you know, and I mean sexuality in a very broad term, you know, your, your, uh, your female attributes, then that, those kinds of fears would be likely to change your menstrual cycle because it's a sexual-based fear. It's a fear that has something to do with gender. I mean, it may not be sex-based, but when I say sexual-based, I mean that in a very general way, gender-based. So if you had gender-based fears, then that's gender-based fears. That negativity associated with something that has to do with gender could come out in terms of uh, difficult menstrual cycles. Sure. You know, a, a person who is uh, has a lot of um, negative thoughts about themselves, well, often those negative thoughts will tend to lower the amount of serotonin they produce. And pretty soon they become depressed. And they have to take medications to raise the serotonin level. And the doctor will say, well, that just happens sometimes. You know, people's serotonin just kind of drops off and they need these pills to help push it back up again. But the reason is because of the negative, the negativity towards self tends to modify, you know, that will manifest in the body somehow. A lot of our thoughts and fears manifest in the body. So if it's negativity towards self, then that tends to manifest biology that leads you toward depression. So we talk about, we say, well, okay, this, this depression is just biological. See, serotonin's low. Well, there's very little about the, bo- about the body that's just the body. <laughs> your, your mind, your intent changes all sorts of biological things, modifies them. So yes, uh, uh, you know, negativity around something that is gender based could easily come out as problematic menstrual cycles. Okay, so you think yeah. it's likely that if I sort of look at those issues, that it like will just disappear again? Probably, if you if you look at them, if you deal with them, looking at them probably won't help. But if you actually deal with them and get rid of them, then your biology isn't as quick. You know, if you if you get rid of them, it may take a few days or even a few weeks before the biology catches up because the biology actually has to change stuff around. But it shouldn't take too long before the body catches up and those things would go away. Mm-hmm. Stress. Stress is usually related to some sort of fear. So if you have stress that's gender-related, then it'll probably manifest as gender-related aches and pains and problems. If you have stress that's just general and isn't really related to anything in particular, then you'll probably get you know knots in the back of your neck and your shoulders, and you'll have tight you know little muscle cramps and sore spots and back aches and all sorts of these kind of non-specific things and you'll go to a doctor and they'll say yeah that stuff just happens well we don't know why but a lot of people get it well a lot of people are stressed so you'll have indigestion you know you'll have back aches you'll have other sorts of things like that shoulders will ache necks will ache that's kind of more non-specific stress it just depends on what's going on in your head so yes that relationship is is very likely there okay that was really helpful thank you john armand please go ahead with your question uh well uh i have a question but uh, another question popped up in my mind when you and caroline talked about fears uh, is it okay if i ask, ask that one first sure. okay um it's about getting rid of fears um i having my system now to uh, have the intention to get rid of the fear by uh, like have the intention to don't want to be this way and i want to be i don't want to be this negative person but um, 
is there any other tool to to use as a complement like um, perhaps visualization uh, to see oneself um, without that fear in the future and combine those is it oh sure there's lots of yeah there's lots of uh, tools that you can use um, yeah, the, the the possible tools are just as broad and wide as your as your imagination is broad and wide you know you can make up tools to visualize you can visualize oh here you know here i am with uh, full of fear and you can you can kind of visualize this dark this dark space and now you're going to get rid of all that darkness and turn it into light and that's me getting rid of my fear so you just set up a symbol or um you can have uh you know the the um the fear you can have a, like a thermometer chart you know and here's at the top that's red hot fear you know and then you can bring it down and down and you can sit there and bring that thermometer up and see that okay it's a little lower than it was last time i'm i'm doing better and you can just anything you make up like that it basically is a metaphor or a symbol for your fear and then get rid of that metaphor or symbol or work with it then all those things are helpful you know, you can even use the the uh, the old uh, trick of you know writing things on writing things on pieces of paper and taping them to your refrigerator door. So that every time you go there, you know you have a little message that says, you know, fear is the problem, love is the solution. You know, and again, if you read that thirty or forty times a day. And, and think about it, feel it when you read it, well, that'll add up and that'll help. So you know, there's almost an, 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 uh, you know, an unlimited list of tools. But the key is that you have to find tools that work for you, tools that connect with your own emotions, with your own feelings. So try out different kinds of tools. If the tool to you is just kind of sterile, you know, it's just an intellectual kind of thing, then that tool's not good for you. It needs to connect to you at the being level. And the more you use a tool, often the better, the more effective it gets. So yes, indeed, do use tools. But all those tools are doing is helping you do what you said in the first place, and that is turn, you know, not be that way, you know, to turn your intent toward not being that way. All the tools are just helping that focus. The tools are very useful. But does the tool need to be um, uh, connected to the um, uh, feeling level, the intuition? Does the metaphor need to be um, about feelings? Uh, yeah, but the metaphor needs to be one that you can connect to, not just intellectually, but one that you can connect to. You know, it's um, yeah. It has to be something that is meaningful to you. It's, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever that is, you can. Uh, you know, if you're very competitive, then you could have that thermometer or some kind of a dial. You see, and you say, "Well, I just want to get better than I was." You know, I want to just move that dial up because you're a very competitive kind of person, then that kind of thing, competing against yourself, would work. But if you're not a competitive person, that would fall flat. It wouldn't help at all. You'd say, well, i got to move that up better next time. And you go, eh, nah, I don't really care about <laughs> next time. That's, that's, you know, it wouldn't work for you. So, yes, you have to have some tool that, you, you know, that, that talks to you at an intuitive level some tool that's meaningful, you know, what is it that you'd like to accomplish? Oh, you want to improve your relationships, say, with people. Well, then a tool could could be, uh, you know, you uh, seeing yourself talking with somebody and they push one of your buttons. They say something that gets you upset and makes you defensive or something. And then you could see yourself dealing with it. That would be a tool that you could use, a visual kind of kind of thing. So whatever you're working for, you can take that and make tools out of it. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, thank you. Uh, I will definitely use that. Uh, uh, and my other question is about uh, parallel processing. Uh, 
sometimes it has happened that I have received a push or that communication has arisen during events in regular life without initiating it myself. When I have the intention myself to establish communication and uh, part of the process, it's more difficult to make it uh, to make it clear. Uh, I have noticed that it can happen when I focus on an object or stare at something and let go of the intellect. Then, then I can feel that there is a beginning to something, perhaps a communication, but usually no more than that. Uh, it, it has happened in deep meditation that I have communicated with uh, LCS or perhaps entity, uh, but the difference is very big and it felt more clear and specific and straight away. And I was wondering if meditation is the key to get getting better at uh, parallel processing or keep practicing mindfulness or do you have another tips to get better at um, getting this state of parallel parallel processing okay well what you're trying to achieve is putting yourself in the being level space not in intellectual space the intellectual space just gets in the way so however you can best get in that being level space or an intuitive space then that will work for you now meditation works just because meditation puts you into that intuitive space right the meditation is uh, an exercise where you stop thinking stop intellectualizing tell your mind to sit down and be quiet and you just be an experience well that puts you in the being level so the reason that works is because it puts you in the state you need to be in in order to be successful with your communications or anything else, not just communications, but healing or getting data, the databases, all of them uh, work with you being in that being level, intuitive space. So that's why meditation is good. It puts you in that space. But you may have other things that also can put you in that space, or you can maybe just put your mind there. With enough practice, you'll be able to just be in that intuitive space almost all day long, kind of live there. But meditation is just a tool that helps put you in that being level space. There's nothing magic about meditation other than it's designed to keep you in a being level state or space as opposed to an intellectual state or space. So that's why that works. And when you try to do it, it's your intellect that's doing the trying. Your intellect says, well, I'm going to sit down now and communicate with so-and-so or find out about such-and-such. Now, that's an intellectual thought. And as much as you sit there and your intellect is focused, nothing much happens. But when you're not focused through your intellect and you're just being, then more happens. So it's not really is meditation the the thing it's not meditation it's getting into a a uh, being level getting into the being level and being able to just hang there turn your mind off turn your intellect off that's really what you're trying to do it seems like it's more easier for the other way around when i feel like it's something that wants to tell me something it comes pretty clear but but yeah, yeah i just perhaps need to practice more yeah. That's because when you're listening, you're in a passive state. Your intellect isn't leading. Your intellect isn't really involved. You're just listening. You're open. That's easier. If you're the one sending messages, now your intellect is involved in some way as to the reaction you're going to get, what you're, you know, what you're hoping to achieve, and that then gets in your way. If you just do it, a heartfelt communication, and that person gets it or does whatever with it they want, you're just offering it out there. You're, you're giving the communication. You're not really having your mind wrapped around the result of it or what it's going to do or how it's going to work. Then you'll be much more successful. But when you transmit, you tend to be a little more intellectual. 
when you receive, it's easier to not be intellectual because you're a, you're a passive receiver. Great. Thank you. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.